Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. Come in. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Opening Doors, Navigating the Future of the Theater Industry. I'm Spencer. I'm here today with our first guest, Riley Elton Harvey. Hi, uh, thank you for having me. We're going to start today with our first segment, which is a feature of our artist. So first, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do in the theater industry. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm Riley Elton McCarthy. I'm a playwright. I use they, them pronouns. And uh, I, yeah, I'm pretty much a playwright. <laughs> I, I write uh, theater for trans people, particularly horror theater. And I'm very focused on humanizing trans people within the theater canon. I was just at the tank to see your new play a couple of weeks ago. Uh, take me down to the levee and you recently took a play to edinburgh fringe yes i did what was the fringe experience like i've heard a lot of mixed things mixed things from me or from, uh, from everyone who's done it yeah that was a that was an interesting year of fringe i i i feel like there was so much twitter discourse about edinburgh fringe going on i want to say my fringe experience was really positive um, it wasn't, I think Fringe is very difficult to take, like, a long horror theater show abroad for. Uh, some nights we had very full audiences and some nights we had seven people. <laughs> and, um, we had, I found out when I arrived to the theater that our black box theater, which was thrust stage, um, from pictures looked like a real stage, right? It was a hotel conference room with a black floor laid across it, um, like taped to the ground. And when Hans, who played Gwen, Ryan, who played Beckham, and Chloe, who played Sarah, and I all walked into this room and took a look at the floor, we all just kind of had a chuckle. And then we were like, all right, Fringe, and kept going. I, I will say, like, as someone who is also half European, I'm Danish, uh, I feel very at home in Europe. And it was all of their first, well, not Hans, but Ryan and Chloe's first time abroad ever. They got their passports for this show. And Hans and I were much more like comfortable and like uh just just in the travel sense of it all. We were very familiar with the process and everything. And we kind of had a very firm understanding of what this would be. But Chloe and Ryan were also massive troopers and very much so jumped into we did a lot of flyering, uh, which is never fun, but it did get us we we did get quite an audience from flyering, like Ivories specifically. I know it didn't work for every show, but we kind of knew what our angle was and we're all pretty charismatic people. So we were able to pull, <laughs> we were able to pull an audience and we, from, from doing it in New York over three years now, we debuted at the tank in 2021 uh, on that big 98 proscenium. We did our first workshop production of what would become Ivories. And then uh, we were at the brick in March this year. And then we went to 5959, which I, I saw you at and uh, then we took it to Fringe and across the runs, the most intimate experience I had was at the Fringe with audience members. I was, the the stage was like three times smaller than 5959. It was really tiny. Uh, We didn't know that either. We compared the specs. Uh, I suspect maybe they got moved into a different room or something in the, our theater was in a hotel and it was in a hotel conference room. Uh, We had no idea that it would be a conference 
conference room, the website said it was next door to a, a hotel. No, it was in the hotel. I suspect something may have been moved around or whatnot to make the room that small, but comparing the tech specs, they were supposed to be about the same size. And it was not. But we were so close to the audience, I had a very intimate relationship as Sloan when I'm sitting there for a long period of time in Act 1 just writing. I got very close and personal with the audience, and I feel like I fully realized Sloan as an actor there at the Fringe. It finally, I struggled a little bit as an actor in New York when I was so far from the audience to have a relationship with them. And then here in Fringe, because they were inches from my face, I got really close to them. And the amount of crying I do in that show, um, I would look back into their eyes and there were just tears streaming down people's faces. And it was a cathartic emotional experience for audience members and myself. And I felt very successful in that regard. I'm not sure. I actually... I, actually, I would like to do Fringe again. Not with Ivories. Um, there there are other things coming for Ivories, but Fringe is not one of those things. And I I would I would say to new Fringe goers, don't take a very long show. Um, you will struggle to get an audience. However, Ivories hit a, a certain niche of like film nerds and like <laughs> like auteurs of the art that love like a, a horror movie, and that spoke to them very specifically. And I got that exact audience that I wanted. The people who were there, I found, were more often than not the people who I would want to see this show. Though we had an encounter in the in Newark International Airport coming back from the Fringe that I have to share. That um, as we were checking out in customs coming back from Fringe, it was like Hans, Ryan, Chloe, and I in line. And we were in the long, winding, like, customs line. And this woman turns and looks at us and goes, you're the Ivories people. And we were like, oh, hi. And it's like this older woman who had like, she, she had like a bob cut. And she turns to us and she's like, you guys did Ivories. I saw you guys yesterday. And Ryan's like, oh, how sweet. What'd you think? And she was like, God, the actors are all amazing, but the writing is horrible. And I just, I guess like something showed it in my face because Hans turns to me and goes, Riley, don't. Riley, don't. And I was like, thank you. I'm the playwright. And she goes, oh, oh, I should not have said that. And I was like, I kind of just shrugged. I <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't particularly angry or anything, but I was, I, I was, I was amused more than anything, but I was just, I was shell shocked that <laughs> I, I feel like there's a certain understanding that when you go to Fringe, you're probably watching people who wrote, directed, and did all of the things with the Fringe show. <laughs> so it was a moment of like, man, why would you say that out loud? Um, not offended or anything, but it was it was deeply funny. Um, kind of the highlight of my day, like coming back from Fringe. This poor woman. Uh, she was very she, she was very well meaning, but I could tell. Um, yeah, I was like, oh dear. Um, I let her know she could go purchase the script if she was confused at the drama bookshop. Uh, <laughs> I She wasn't particularly my demographic of person who I would expect to see at Ivory's. And I have quite a, a wide range of audience members who have had deeply emotional responses to that play. But this, this particular patron, I can completely understand why it was not her thing. But man, was it a, a funny encounter. I, I was beyond enthused. Well, that's something that I think is so interesting in talking about, specifically writing shows, is talking about a demographic. Mm -hmm. Particularly a lot of things that are being written for young people, for, for, for people under 30, that a lot of these audience are very shoehorning and, you know, trying to get references in there. And I do think that it's okay to create art for a group of people that doesn't mention things that they'll know about every two seconds. Yeah. And I do think... That 
that a play like Ivory's is, is very, like, that's something I would 100% take younger people to in their 20s because it's such a, a new take on horror theater. Thank you. I agree. That is my audience. The most receptive people to Ivory's is people in their, like, just in the bracket of, like, that 10-year span of 20s. Like, yeah. that is my audience right now for Ivory's, and I'm okay with that. So our industry is hard. <laughs> it's a difficult one. What compels you to keep going and keep aiming for a career in this very difficult industry? I love this question. I, you know, I'm getting my master's in playwriting right now at Rutgers. And every Monday we workshop new pages with um, the senior BFA acting students at Rutgers. And I was talking to my professor about this um, about a week ago that I was taken aback and overwhelmed with emotion when I learned that most of the class is transgender or non-binary. When I was an acting student at Marymount Manhattan College only a few years ago, um, there were very few of us that were trans or non-binary. There's a lot more now, which I've noticed, not just at Rutgers, but everywhere. There's a lot more openly trans and non-binary acting students, which is really exciting. But I started writing as a playwright because there was no material for me as a trans actor that wasn't like horribly offensive or or well-meaning but misguided or um like kind of kind of stereotyping us in in a dehumanizing way and I didn't want to do that I I saw my career as either being that forever or writing myself out of that narrative and so I pivoted to playwriting at the encouragement of my mentor Kenny Finkel to do so and I think about this now because yesterday I brought in a brand new play that I'm working on that that I haven't really told anyone about to be workshopped by these students. And I got an almost all trans cast from the the pool of students reading this play where every character is queer and to watch the room light up and to hear those students tell me how important this was to them and how seen they felt and to quote one of the students this feels like it was written for me and it's because it is i i write very much so for the trans people in my life who are going to continue to break boundaries down in the industry and create humanizing portrayals of our everyday lives and i'm really interested in interrogating the intersection of transness in the arts community because of it, because I think our understanding evolves with empathy and I refuse to give up. Uh, I refuse to give up. And I felt very touched and very moved by being in that class. But also I apply that into my work outside of uh, classroom. Uh, Just as a playwright in general, I'm surrounded by many wonderful trans performers and trans directors and trans intimacy directors and Uh, You know, my play, I'm Going to Eat You Alive, that opened at the tank in September and is getting an encores run in December, uh, has an entirely non-binary cast. And that is that has been one of the most wonderful experiences of my life to be in a room full of non-binary people who just get it (laughs) and understand both the journey of the non-binary lead in this play, but also how important it is to me that these people are non-binary. But also there are just things in the script that we know are for us and we don't need to justify to anybody else. And that has been a cathartic and heartwarming experience despite the very dark and scary content of that play. Well, that was something that that I noticed with both of the plays of yours that I saw that it's very, you know, dark. You like it's it's horror, but but you have these these moments in there that are so special that you see whether it's representation or you see just things being normal life for these performers. 
I host another show that's based off award shows. And there was the long conversation last year because the Tonys having issues acknowledging non-binary people. Yeah. And still do. And they're still really not sure what they're doing. Yeah. But then two non-binary people ended up winning the gendered actor categories for leading in a musical last year and everyone was just fine with it and I think that surprised the Tony mm. because of how amazing it was um, so to see again that representation is so special um, it's life-saving when somebody who is transgender or non-binary is recognized for their talent in such a large way like the Tony Awards. And to that to that note, I've I've thought many times about the Tonys and the drama desks and the gender distinction. Did did the drama desk get rid of the gender distinction? Yeah, drama desk did cuz they did like one big category and nominated like 20 people. And then they picked two. Yeah. I like that approach. Yeah. I know it it, it may I I like that approach because it takes a way actually you know i know everyone worries about like oh gender and uh what yeah. if we don't recognize one man and one woman i think it, it it solely nominates people on the merits of their talent alone and i i would love to see what this model does for the next five years and what the statistics are on the wins because i'm curious if it'll take away um less less wins for i i mean i wonder if it'll make like men win less i don't know i'm curious because a lot of the amazing new writing i've seen has mostly been like feminist based like coming on and off Broadway with very bold political takes which has been exciting actually the amount of new plays and musicals that have come in through that have a very optimistic lens for the future and also are unafraid to take risks has been a huge change since COVID um I don't know how long you've lived in the city but I've been here on and off for almost seven years now and um the work <laughs> before COVID was a little uh interesting uh the you yeah. Um, the seasons are getting better, in my opinion, a lot better. And a lot of new playwrights who are not established are getting produced, which is really exciting as well. And I'm curious to see what this model for nominations does. I won't lie. I've also thought about where I would put myself in Ivory's if it ever, if it ever like transferred, which fingers crossed. Um, uh, I, I wonder where I would bill myself as a non-binary person because I can't go in leading actor because then I would be splitting the vote with two other people for Ivory's, uh, which is not fun. Uh, I would not want to do that. Could you imagine a category where uh, Beckham, Gwyn, and Sloan are all nominated? That would be horrible. <laughs> that would be horrible. Horrible. I remember Lin-Manuel Miranda when, when they were all nominated for Hamilton and it was him up against Leslie Odom Jr. And then it was David Diggs, Chris Jackson, and Jonathan Groff who were all nominated in the same category. And he was just like, someone should win. As long as someone from us wins, I don't care. I... I imagine with Ivories, even if I'm not in it in down the line, if it ever gets a bigger run, um, it'd be very difficult to not nominate whoever is playing those roles. <laughs> Just from the emotional work they have to put in. Lots of crying. <laughs> Lots of crying. Ooh. I I feel like those are vehicles for Tony's, which feels very silly for me to say out loud. I'm, I don't think I necessarily would ever be nominated. But, you know, it, whoever plays Gwyn, God... <laughs> 
<laughs> has to do some heavy lifting that I would award an award to. Well, so let's move on to to the state of our current industry since we're kind of talking about that. This season is a crazy season, as was last season. Last season, there were 19 new plays on Broadway uh, specifically, which was crazy. Yeah. And this year, there's 14 announced new musicals and more that aren't announced and not a lot of plays, which to me was very disappointing. I very much got into plays more when I moved to the city and I was like, oh, there's things other than musicals. Yeah. You know, last season, I saw most of the new plays. I didn't even see last season, to be honest. I didn't see much of it. So much stuff. But I, I believe in terms of new plays this season were very light and made me very disappointed. You know, speaking, we'll talk about horror plays. Grey House, which was produced at the beginning of this season. Yeah. And, uh, unfortunately did not do very well. Yeah, I've, I've seen and read Grey House. I think it's a wonderful play. I think Joey Holloway is incredibly talented. Um, it is, I, I think it was very unfortunate to open a horror play in the spring. I, the thing about Grey House to me, here's what I suspect happened. I suspect Laurie Metcalf had filming conflicts in the fall and they wanted Laurie Metcalf and Tatiana Maslany. And I imagine because of how difficult and rigorous like the fall filming schedule season is, um, that was the only time that she could do it. Um, and she's done a lot of shows in the spring that have opened. Um, Doll's House Part 2 opened in the spring. Um, Hillary and Clinton opened in the spring, just for examples of ones that I've seen that she was in. And, oh yeah, and Three Tall Women. Oh, what a gem of a show. What a treat uh, of that cast. Glenda Jackson, Laurie Metcalf, and Allison Pill. Amazing, amazing, amazing. I got to see Allison Pill last night in uh, 24-hour plays. Oh, how was that? It was four hours long. Oh my goodness. But at the end... Raul Esparza sang Being Alive from Company. Uh, it was worth the three hours before that. It was very funny. They were doing an auction trying to raise money. David Burko was offering off cooking at your apartment because, you know, he's a chef. And then it, the bidding wasn't going high enough. So Neil Patrick Harris sprints through the audience, jumps up on the stage like a gazelle and screams, I will make drinks for you. And it was just the funniest. Oh my goodness. What a pair those two. Yeah. What a bunch of comedians. I saw Neil in Into the Woods at City So Center. did I. I was the bar manager, so I saw it every night. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that production. I, I worked the first preview and opening night, and then I went to grad school, school so I didn't need to bar manage anymore. Uh, I loved I loved that job at City Center, being the bar manager. I got to see all the encore shows. It was great. Sorry, where were we? <laughs> oh, new plays this season. Yeah, Grey House, I, again, wouldn't have opened it in the summer. And then obviously now the filming schedule, they totally could have opened it in the fall. because SAG, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Cottage was a new play. I haven't seen Cottage, though. Very exciting for Sandy Rustin. Yes. I love any time a woman or a trans person gets produced on Broadway uh, as a playwright. Love it. Uh, yeah, that play was very funny. Great cast. Arabelle Bundy. Uh, I love that. Oh, Amazing. The best. so talented. There are many wonderful actors in my life. I hope one day I will get to intersect with some of the wonderful ones on Broadway. I have in some ways, but uh, would love to see them in my work. And it does seem, though, like this season, we are getting a lot of uh, new comedy, um, which are. I do think is post-COVID what a lot of playgoing audiences seem to be wanting. But it is a little disappointing. I'd love to see more dramas. One of my favorite plays from last season off-Broadway, Pray for the French Republic. I'm very excited. It's transferring. That was also at City Center. Yes. I also saw it. <laughs> yes, I'm really happy to see. I, I also agree with you. I'm, I am I just went to go see the Refuge plays with my yes. class. And God, 
uh, I will say one thing is I do love a very long play. I controversial take. I hate the 90 minute play format. Yeah. I have 90 minute plays. You saw a 90 minute version of Ivory's. It is not written to be that way. Uh, we just cut the intermission and we trimmed back Sloan quite a bit to make that happen. Um, and it was a serviceable version of the play. Like you could follow along. I think it cost Sloan a lot of development, but it, it it was a very followable version of the play. But I love a long intermission play. Like I love a play with an intermission and I like to go get a refill on my drink and enjoy the rest of the show. I don't like to treat the theater like the movies. Like I'm not going to sit there and snack the whole time. Um, which is fine if you do. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a gatekeeper. I'm not going to tell you how to spend your time in the theater. But I. I love a big long play, and I love to to watch it. I saw Angels in America like three times when I was in undergrad. Uh, which <laughs> is like 24 hours of Angels in America. <laughs> Were you doing the math in your head? <laughs> yeah, something like that. About 24 hours, 22, give or take. I loved it, though. And I don't know if I would do that again with Angels. I think I'm all Angels out. Like, I'm I'm so all Angels out now. But I I think it's an art form that's dying is the well-crafted long play. And now, I don't know if it's like a attention span thing or... Like, I have ADHD, but I love a long play that sucks me in. But people don't want to sit through those anymore. And... I get it, but I also don't. And I'm a little worried about like theater as a whole as we inch away from these like ex- theater as an experience and more as theater as entertainment. Does that make sense? Yeah. The reason I love a play with an intermission is you can talk with the person that you went to the show with and talk about the show. Yeah. And then you go out and get drinks after the show and talk about the show more. I also was just looking, because I'm seeing I Need That with Danny DeVito tonight. Oh, awesome. And I was looking to see the length of that. And of course, it's 100 minutes, no intermission. I do think sometimes an intermission with a comedy can be a little bit. Like, 100 minutes is a great... Like, Cottage has an intermission, which I think works really well. There are some comedic plays that really like that. 100 minutes is a great thing for them. Mm-hmm. 100 minutes with an intermission? or a hundred... Without. Without, got you, yes. I've done, I mean, Levy was a hundred minutes without an intermission and that was a comedy. (laughs) I think that works very well for that play. I actually think the runtime of that play is honestly exactly where I want it to be. I don't think it should be a minute shorter or a minute longer, though I would adjust some of the scenes a little bit. Um, just just in terms of content i'm like man i can trim this just a little bit but i think the runtime can be about the same um but i i do love a, a nice long drama i love something that captivates my attention for two hours with an intermission i love guessing where a story is going um and i love plays that don't assume your audience is stupid like i've i've seen quite a few of those that either spoon feed the plot to the audience or neatly tie everything up with a bow and i think that that assumes that the, the average American audience has no um, media literacy and cannot absorb like the nuance of a text. But I find that if you lay the groundwork well enough, um, anybody can understand any play at its at its bare bones, at least. And I've sometimes commercial theater and what gets produced is puzzling to me. It has been very encouraging in the past few years, the quality of what has been produced. But there was a play, and I'm not going to say what it was, there was a play produced a few years ago that I sat through that was from a very prolific writer and 
I required quite a bit of dramaturgy to it, um, like textually, like to to pull it off successfully. And it was just all over the place. Um, had no idea what it was trying to say. No, couldn't pick like a, a common theme, nothing. And it was really disappointing. And like that play resonates with me in the wrong ways that I was like, I will never write a play like that. Well, to talk about accessibility, like Paula Vogel, who's a very prolific playwright, her new play is, is coming on Broadway and was a Announced as untitled Paula Vogel play. That's how far she was into it. And so I do think that with that specific like pedigree of writing that she gets the opportunity to premiere that on Broadway and announce it before they have a title. Now they have a title. It has a title now? Yes. Uh, Mother Play. Oh, Mother Play. Starring Celia Keaton-Bolger, Jessica Lange, and Jim Parsons. Oh, it's that one. Yeah. Is that at the Hayes? Yes. My, uh, my second favorite theater on Broadway. I love the Hayes too. I remember when it, it reopened with, with second stage. I saw the first production there, Torch Song. Michael Green was amazing. But yeah. I mean, commercial theater is something I can tell about for hours and the state of what's happening right now budgets are inflated ticket prices are inflated yeah. but you know what's not inflated audiences i there are there are many theories i have to that i don't think there's an easy answer for this is what's wrong with audiences not coming um some of it is is what's being produced which is not to say that the plays are not amazing that are being produced by new playwrights but they're not necessarily always speaking to now and i think when you produce something you have to ask yourself why now then you have to look really deep into yourself to get that answer and if you can answer that in a way that you know that will bring in that audience yes to there's a lot of theaters that are subscriber-based and the subscriber-based demographic is much older than you and I. That's that's part of it. And the subscriber base really does determine like what gets produced. And their subscriber bases are all down. Mm -hmm. The fees are expensive. Not, nobody's rich anymore. <laughs> Half joking. Uh, nobody's rich anymore. Two, the ticket prices are bad. Really bad. Um, I don't go, I don't, if my class is not going to, we go to see a show in my program every week and those are paid for by Rutgers. Like my, my school pays for us to go to the theater every week. And uh, had it not been that, I would not go see very many shows that aren't produced by my friends or at the tank or, you know, indie theater. I go to a lot of indie theater. I just don't go to a lot of commercial theater. I don't have time. Uh... <laughs> I'm a busy playwright. Um, I I have gone to see in the past pretty much anything produced at um, New York Theater Workshop, though. I, I will make an effort to go to a New York Theater Workshop show because the quality tends to be really great and I like how they curate their shows. I will go see as much at the public as I can um, just because their accessibility is really good at the public and, um, and financial accessibility. The Their, their ticket prices are good. It is because they also have money. I mean, they have their budget is also cut, but you have to think about the fact that the public gets a percentage of Hamilton's grosses every week. Mm. Most commercial theaters don't have a large, successful commercial show to help them with their budget. Obviously, everyone's budgets, uh, nonprofit wise, are down, but I do think the public is a special one. It is. And I, I think, though, as controversial as their current season is, um, I do think they do put on very quality theater. Um, I have not liked everything they've done. 
uh, I'm not going to name, there's a show in the past five years, I can say that I really did not enjoy. Um, and from a dramaturgical sense, found to be very dated in its politics. And I was a little disturbed. Um, I'm not going to say what it was. But um, for the most part, I feel like they put on quality, like, and accessible theater. Their Shakespeare in the Park initiative is really good. Um, and I think they're an important landmark of New York theater. New York Theater Workshop also is an incubator for bold and exciting work. And though they mostly collaborate with the with their their usual suspects, um, it is it is often in the name of quality. And I I love theater that is unafraid to take risks to get an audience. And those tend to sell very well. Um, I don't think there's we were talking about it earlier, but I don't think there's much theater for people our age. Like in our 20s. Most of it is, is 30s and older or high school. There's nothing really exciting for college aged students that illustrates us at this age. Um, there's nothing really for those of us getting into our late 20s. Um, it's or even mid-20s. And I write a lot of that on purpose because I've one, like as someone who has a, a massive background in acting, what am I supposed to work on? <laughs> what am I supposed to work on? What what is the where's the theater for me? What what roles am I going to bring into an audition room with a monologue? You know? That's that's hard. So I try to create as much of that as possible. And for two, like it's not really the theater's not really aiming to bring us in, which is such a mistake. Like they'll offer like free or discounted tickets to college students but i've found a lot of people don't always take them because they're not interested in what the show is and that's hard like how do you how do you bring in an audience if the theater that you're you're creating and asking them to come to even for free doesn't represent them doesn't speak to them you know and that's that's also difficult yeah i mean i'm working with my university to, to bring a group of students to to some musicals this season because they all want to really see musicals we have a large international population so they want to see broadway they don't care about anything else and we settled on and juliet which is the closest thing that musical we have to four people in their 20s yeah but then you have the music where it's you know for people older than us and that's the nostalgia for them and also again it's a jukebox musical i'd rather support original work um even if it's bad original work i will tell you like i there's a, a jukebox musical that i love that was so mistreated on broadway that i think apologies dogs am i right yes i'm saying there's a jukebox musical i love that was formative for me in college that i understand because i saw this show and loved it why like young people our age love like these kinds of jukebox musicals but they're all trying to capitalize off of like the 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 artistic success of this show but not necessarily improving upon what went wrong with that show and it's head over heels I love Head Over Heels. I will defend it to death. I think it was brilliant. I think its representation of the non-binary character was poignant and important and I needed to hear it when it when it opened. I think the show was mishandled very poorly. Both in critical reviews, one, I really strongly disagree. Um, and I tend to agree, actually, with, with some critical reviews of shows that are kind of negative or mixed um, art on an artistic scale. It makes me sad for the artists involved that I know that they poured their heart into something and it just doesn't work. But also, I think arts criticism is a very necessary and important um, lifeblood for the theater. And I am also a strong, um, I, have, I have a strong feeling about like the, the idea of shows running like long running shows i i actually wish shows had term limits i <laughs> if only to continue to reinvest money into new and original ideas i 
I wish there was some kind of middle ground um, so that we could continue to allow theater to evolve because sometimes these shows, as brilliant as they are when they open, don't date well or they do, but they just don't need to keep running. But also money, I get it. It's it's much more complex than I could ever understand. And there's no right or wrong answer, I think, here. Well, that's an interesting conversation to talk about tourism because tourism in New York City, a lot of those shows that they're going to, it used to be Phantom. Now it's Wicked and Chicago. Now, did they, did they get ups in numbers from Phantom closing? Very much so. I mean, Wicked already was selling out. I still don't know how they're selling out the largest theater on Broadway 20 years after they opened. Book of Mormon still being open. I Again, I don't know who's going to see it still. I've seen it. Everyone's seen it at this point. Yeah. Chicago, again, they're really successful right now for some reason, considering the amount of stunt casting they normally do. And they don't have a stunt cast right now. And they're like making normal amounts of money, which is weird. Mm. Uh, so I do think that they got some of that phantom closing the tourism money, yeah. I think tourism is really important to New York City. Um, I mean that that's a that's a that I'm not gonna deny that. Um, or or bequeath that or have disdain. I don't think there's anything wrong with tourism. That's every major city has tourism as a massive lifeblood of their economy. People want to visit New York City. Um, I wonder how much the idea of tourism around theater would change if long running shows went away. Like I'm curious what would happen with that, like as a social element. But I'm not I'm not wishing that on anybody i'm not sitting here like everyone should close their long-running shows right now i'm just curious what would happen uh from an anthropological stance like where would they would they go see all these new shows what would they do uh imagine hades town is going to become one of those tourist trap shows by continuing to not put new people in that cast they ended up having to pay their cast more which is good for them but not good for the producers mm. and that show should have been stunt cast two years ago instead of now I suspect that may have had to do with the original cast clause contracts. And I also think COVID probably had something to do with that, is if they're continuing to make money off of Town and it's not necessarily the most strenuous show to do, um, I would stay and keep doing it. Um, though Ava Noblezada, like, is doing the most in that show. And I, I don't blame her, especially for deciding to leave when she did so that she could preserve her vocal cords. Uh, man. And she's, you know, I'm seeing that next week that she's in a Gatsby at Paper Mill. I had friends offer me tickets to that. I declined. Uh, I don't, I don't like the great Gatsby. What do I? I really hate the story, but it's a good enough cast that I'll slip out the jersey. If I want to watch it, I'll watch the Baz Luhrmann uh, Gatsby which yeah. is a pretty good adaption. Uh, it's not perfect, but I enjoy it. It's fun. Yeah, I mean, look, Town. I hope Jordan Fisher does for them what they need him to do for them. But Dear Evan Hansen was also financially really struggling. And I suspect that the reason that even if he was missing as many performances to be with his wife and kid, um, the reason they did not replace him was to bank on those ticket sales to keep the show going. You know, and that... There's a lot of things that are unfair on all ends about that situation that I wouldn't necessarily be quick to pin on an actor, but like the marketing team and the producing team. And we also don't know why they couldn't secure a different star or, you know, I don't want to speculate on that. I I think that's more complex. Well, I think that one, the, the answer to why they could, yeah, that's a hard show. It's a hard show. Not everyone wants to do that. And didn't the movie just come out? 
Yeah, that was right after all the controversy with the movie. So nobody's going to want to do that anyways. When you keep hearing the movie is bad, 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 you're going to want to run, run, run away from the, the source material. Because I know that the movie called into question the source material. And uh, I I don't I, I don't have a comment on Jared Hansen. I, <laughs> my opinion doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I saw it very early. I saw it like right before it opened. Mm reviews no one had really heard of it the house was kind of empty is that a second stage or was that that was on broadway and it was incredible um at that time now having revisited it multiple other times since then and also seen a lot more theater since then i have changed my opinion on that show i my only stance on dear evan hansen is the demographic for that show is mostly white men in their from age 16 to 35. And I agree with some of its messaging about male mental illness, and I disagree with some of the approach. Um, And that is not to say about the quality of the show itself. Stephen Levinson is a very talented writer. Like, just speaking for the book alone as a dramatist myself, because I have no stance on on, um, composing or writing songs. From the book alone, the book is good. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with the book. Um, I think it does exactly what it's trying to do, and Stephen Levinson communicates his ideas very clearly. Um, yeah, I think, but I, I it, it is puzzling and worrisome to me, like, the effect that, that that show's visibility may have had on furthering stories about mental illness that have even more nuanced takes on it that are handled with a little bit more care that I think, you know, we had a lot of conversation about male mental illness with Ivory's actually, because the character of Gwyn has PTSD and he is deeply affected by the death. He witnessed the death of his boss when he was 16, when he, well, I'm not going to dip into spoiler territory for people who haven't seen it, but he, he was very close with Beckham during that time and Beckham watched him fall apart and kind of rebuild his own life with Sloan. And that it has turned terrible. Uh, he ran from one sort place of trauma into the arms of more trauma. Their marriage is not going well. Um, and there was a lot of conversations we had about like PTSD and like um, particularly the garden scene um, tends to get a very strong audience response because of its portrayal of Gwyn's PTSD and panic disorder. Um, and I wish there was more art that talked about like male sensitivity and how important it is to be able to have people you can talk to about it and also you know having men express their feelings was something that was really important in Ivory's in its development to deconstruct toxic masculinity and Dear Evan Hansen does portray toxic masculinity and male mental illness very clearly but I don't feel it, it dives any deeper to interrogate that or I don't know does that make sense yeah that was very important for me with Ivory's um male mental illness and um kind of putting away some some tropes around it that I I was trying to sidestep as much as possible. I have a lot of male friends in my life who have learned through doing the show, but also through um through their own journeys with mental health, how to talk about it and how to express their their feelings and have come a long way. And at the same time, I'm like it worries me what kind of media is out there feeding everybody like how to handle mental illness and some of it is very very wrong i don't necessarily feel that's dear evan hansen um but it's it, it borders on it a little bit and it I'm, I'm not fond of that but i i'm not upset with dear evan hansen for the other reasons that people are i just i just think some of it is is just not as developed as much as i would like from a dramaturgical sense there are things that outright do not make sense in that story 
And then I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I was like, all right, that's unbelievable. Um, but yeah, I think the movie also tried to solve those things and didn't do the right thing. <laughs> I think we're getting a lot of that with musicals. A lot of jukebox musicals and a lot of the bio musicals have that issue. We're starting to see that change a little bit with a couple of them where they do hire playwrights to write the book. MJ having Lynn Nottage write that book, spectacular. Like those are the things that I'd like to see more of from a, a book musical. Because 99% of the times when I see a musical and I don't like it, it's the book's fault. And just because of the nature of it being a musical not as much time is spent on the book because they're like oh music we need to have songs yeah yay um and that's just something that last year especially was and early this season was rough I didn't see much of last season or I haven't seen much of this Broadway season. I actually kind of avoid musicals right now. I've been kind of musically burned out. I hear some of them are really good, but I I have trust issues (laughs) with musicals because I've seen a lot of not great ones. So I've just avoided them outright. Yeah, I mean, there were some, boy, Once Upon a One More Time was crazy bad um, this season. Uh, But like fun, like it's okay to be fun, I do think. Mm. That's a whole other thing where talking about theater is art versus theater is entertainment it's okay every once in a while to have a theater as entertainment join me next week for part two of my conversation with riley elton mccarthy thanks so much for listening to opening doors navigating the future of the theater industry follow us on x and instagram and we'll see you next week come in